In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to the show Faith and Freedom on Voice of Islam Radio. My name is Azad Chaudhry and you're joined by my co-host Khalid Hayat. Khalid, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. In today's episode, we'll focus on the persecution of the Rohingya Muslims. Before we delve into the topic at hand, let us remind ourselves of the fundamental principle of freedom of religion or belief within Islam. In Islam, the fundamental principle of freedom of religion or belief serves as the cornerstone for fostering peace and societal progress. The Quran unequivocally proclaims, let there be no compulsion in religion in chapter 2 verse 257 emphasizing the inherent value of individual choice in matters of faith this guiding principle underscores islam's commitment to a harmonious coexistence where diverse beliefs contribute to the enrichment of society and indeed where these principles are undermined as we will see today in Myanmar with the Rohingya Muslims it can lead to some devastating consequences not just to the community themselves but also to society as a whole so let us dive into today's episode Khalid and let us get some background on the persecution of the Rohingyas Jazakallah the Rohingya are an ethnic group that are generally Muslim and reside in western Myanmar previously known as Burma this group is not recognized as citizens uh, or permanent members of Burma or Myanmar and, and therefore they have limited access to education, jobs, housing, resulting in them living in pretty much poverty. The United Nations describes the Rohingya people as the most persecuted people in the world and this is due to multiple laws and policies which denied them from getting citizenship in Myanmar for nearly four decades. In 2017, um, UN fact finders classified the violence against Rohingya people as genocide. The military uh, implemented brutal tactics such as burning villages, sexual violence and torture in order to drive Rohingya people out of Myanmar. Members of the Rohingya community, rights groups and a range of international officials including US House of Representatives have all included a genocide has taken place. And the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, is actually in the process of reviewing the genocide allegations against Myanmar and has actually ordered the country to comply with measures to safeguard the Rohingya people. Absolutely. And just further context on the issue. So after this cleansing in 2017, which I guess brought the issue to prominence on the international stage, in February 2021, there was a coup by the military of Myanmar to remove their leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, from government. And basically, Aung San Suu Kyi was then put into prison, I think, as it has been in house arrest ever since. Legislatively, looking back, in 1982, Myanmar passed this citizenship law which is a crucial piece of legislation behind the Rohingya's statelessness. It is constructed in a manner that particularly targets the Rohingya community. The stateless condition has reinforced the state's narrative that they are foreigners or, in the government's terminology, illegal immigrants who are unworthy of state protection. Officially, most Rohingya are not citizens of Myanmar, but resident foreigners. And we'll see in our interview, actually, today with an expert on the matter, this theme which is the illegal immigrants uh, within a country that deserve no rights, no civic rights, no human rights, etc. So that leads me nicely to our interview. So earlier this week, we interviewed Dr. Ronan Lee. Dr. Ronan Lee is a Vice-Chancellor, Independent Research Fellow at Loughborough University, London, where his research focuses on the Rohingya Myanmar, genocide, hate speech, forced migration and Asian politics. Dr. Ronan Lee was awarded the 2021 Early Career Emerging Scholar Prize by the International Association of Genocide Scholars. His book, Myanmar's Rohingya Genocide, Identity, History and Hate Speech, traces the history of the Rohingya of their forced migration and genocide. In 2024, Ronan will undertake a three-year Leverhulme Trust Early Career Fellowship researching the lived experience of Rohingya genocide survivors. 
Ronan has a professional background in politics, media and public policy. He is formerly a Queensland State Member of Parliament and served on the front bench as a Parliamentary Secretary in portfolios including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander partnerships, justice, main roads and local government. He has also worked as a Senior Government Advisor and as an Election Strategist and Campaign Manager. The first question we asked Dr. Ronan Lee is around giving us a very quick snapshot on the issue at hand. But um, before he does so, it's always interesting to understand the context of the Rohingya in Myanmar. So the Rohingyas obviously didn't exist just in the 1970s. There's a very long history of the Rohingya in that region of the world. So let us delve into that section of the interview now. Yeah, I, I think it's important to start from the point of view of let, let, let's look a little bit deeper into history than maybe people often look when yeah. they look at these, these things. So, so, so very often the temptation is to look at uh, very recent events and to try and find a, a very uh, you know, proximate cause for what's going on. Uh, the, the Rohingya are a community that most people would know internationally as the victims of uh, terrible persecution within Myanmar, uh, genocide, a, a large-scale forced deportation out of that country during 2017. Yeah. And, and now they're resident in, in some of the largest refugee camps in the world in, in Bangladesh, adjacent to the Myanmar frontier. But that's not how I'd like to frame this. I think it's important to frame this not that the Rohingya have always been a victim group. I think if we go back through history, we can see that the Rohingya, uh, prior to the colonial period in, in, uh, in, in Myanmar, they're known as, as, as Burma, were uh, co-equal parts of a uh, thriving uh, Arakan kingdom. This is an independent kingdom at the north of the Bay of Bengal, really between Burma and what is Bengal. Uh, it, it was a, um, a commercial kingdom that, that, that traded with the world. It was well known internationally. Uh, in the 1600s, its capital city, Mrau, uh, would have had a population uh, similarly sized to that of London or Paris, the world's wow. biggest cities at that time. And this is a multi-ethnic and, and multi-religious kingdom. Uh, at, at times, the kings were, uh, were obviously Buddhists. At times, the kings obviously used Muslim titles. They minted coins with, with the Kalima, the, the, the Islamic Declaration of Faith, on their coins. Uh, as recently as the 1780s, uh, Persian continued to be the court language of Arakan. Uh, that changed with an invasion by the Burma Empire, as it was then known in 1784. And then just 40 years later, the Burma Empire, having taken control of Arakan, went to war with the East India Company, with the British, who had taken them, themselves taken control of Bengal. And um, the, the Burmese lost that war. Uh, and that, that brings us to um, a century and a half of colonial rule in Burma. But, through, so, but throughout the colonial period, um, the Rohingya would have been uh, recognised as equal parts of, of the country, part of the national political fabric. So just pausing the interview here, Khalid, fascinating insight from Dr. Ronan Lee around the Rohingya Muslims in the 17th century, that they were very much part of that society and the Islamic faith was very much part of that society. Dr. Ronan Lee mentioned that at times they would have Buddhist kings ruling the kingdom. However, irrespective of that, in circulation you had coins that had uh, inscribed the Kalima, the Muslim decoration of faith on them. You also had the Persian language that it was used in courts as the official language. And Rohingya Muslims, as any other citizens in that kingdom, 
could also stand for elections. This is, of course, towards the latter years when the British took over in Burma. So quite shocking to see that from such a position, the Rohingyas then were turned into and alienated and ostracised by a dictatorial regime. It's interesting that Dr. Lee highlighted that this wasn't an overnight process. This kind of alienation of this specific group has happened over time. And so we wanted to understand from Dr. Lee's position, you know, how that process happened overnight or, or, or sequentially, you know, what were the steps that were taken? And we would be interested to understand how that transition from being a material part of the fabric of the country to what the UN is now declaring as genocide. And so we'll turn to that part of the interview now. I mean, we, we, you know, as, as people looking back at history and reading history, we, we, we read what happens over the course of a decade and then we turn the page and we're on the next decade. Yeah. Um, so for us, it feels like these things happen very quickly. For, for the victims, this would have happened incrementally, that what w- there, there would have been the public servants who would find that as they retired, um, new, no new Rohingya public servants were ever hired. Doctors would find that they were qualified doctors, but there was no one else in the Rohingya community able to go to university. And over some decades, these restrictions really started to bite. So throughout the 1960s, I mean, this is a country recovering from the Second World, Second World War. It had been devastated during the war. Um, it, 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 had, um, it, it had to rebuild its economy. Um, people were focused not necessarily on um, issues around citizenship during the 1960s. The military, the military leaders certainly were, and they had an agenda that they were, they were planning to remove the rights from the Rohingya. But from the Rohingya's point of view, these things happen slowly at first and then very quickly. I mean, how how I characterise it in my book, in fact, I think it's the first line, Mm -hmm. um, is that the genocide came to the Rohingya at first very, very slowly and then very quickly. Interesting. It it occurred first by rights slowly been taken away, bit by bit, piecemeal by piecemeal, and and then once the noose is, is suitably tightened, the military uh, then then tightens it to to the point of what is an obvious genocide. Now, I would yeah. trace I would trace the origins of the genocide back to the 60s. I think it's very clear sure. that that's when the patterns that's when the patterns appeared. That's when the rights restrictions first appeared. Um, it didn't it didn't appear on the in sort of the news media of the West mm. until until much later. Now, during the 1970s, there were large-scale forced deportations of Rohingya from Myanmar, and that occurred during the 80s as well and during the 90s. But it was much, it was very difficult for the international media to get um, to get to get images, to get pictures, uh, to 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 even get journalists able to to visit these places. Uh, Burma, as it was then called, was was very much closed off from the outside world. Yeah, it was much much like North Korea, and was that sort of state. Right. It, you you couldn't go. I mean, even even tourists, adventurous tourists who tried to visit the country, would be given a visa that lasted uh, no more than one week. Wow, and, okay. and um, th- there would be tight restrictions on which parts of the country they could visit. They could yeah. visit the major cities, but they couldn't visit the places where the Rohingya would would, sure. would would be present. So even by the 1990s, most ordinary Myanmar residents wouldn't have had regular contact with people describing themselves as Rohingya for some decades because the Rohingya were trapped in their community. Wow. By modern time, you, you would wonder, we, we always wonder why the public 
um, didn't stand up and say, hey, you can't oppress these people. Um, and one of the reasons is that from the, from the military, the, what the military achieved was it separated the communities. It separated a Rohingya community that had been part of the national political fabric from the mainstream of Myanmar life. Yeah. So that, so that by 2016, 2017, there really was no, no mainstream political voice national political voice prepared to stand up for the Rohingyas' rights. Yep. And, and that enabled the military to genocidally deport almost one million civilians no, um, no. in the course of just a couple of weeks. And again, um, you know, it's it's quite shocking to hear that, you know, the, the incremental steps that were taken to all the human rights abuses that have occurred, the crimes that have been committed against the Rohingya people over such a long and broad um, area of history is quite shocking i suppose we're interested to understand maybe a little bit more around the human rights um, abuses and the crimes that have been committed that dr lee was alluding to at that original part of the interview so i'm going to stop and, and let dr lee continue so, so genocide as a crime is a is a crime against a group it's an attempt to um if, according to the un declaration it on on prevention of genocide, it's, it's a crime um that involves the the, the intent to destroy in whole or in part a, a, a group of people. Uh, and, one, and, and the ways you would do that, that, that might occur, obviously, I mean, mass killing is, very obvious, is a very obvious thing that we would say, well, there's, there's no question there, but also um, affecting the ability of communities to live, to function normally, and to pass on their cultural values. And all of those things have happened to the Rohingya women in Myanmar. We've seen mass killing, We've seen conditions of life made such that it was impossible for the community to, to uh, function in any normal way. Uh, and we've seen challenges in terms of how they pass on um, community values. So uh, for, for ordinary life, um, restrictions on travel. I mean, it meant that people couldn't go from one village to another. Mm -hmm. They couldn't readily meet with family, friends who might live just, just a couple of, of kilometres away. Uh, and that lasted for, I mean, that's lasted now for, for decades. Such that, that language is different. Yeah. Rohingya language and, tone, uh, uh, and accent are different in different parts of northern Rakhine State right. who, who are separated just by basically board, internal border checkpoints. Um, so, so one, one obvious restriction, I mean, clear restrictions on access to education, uh, high school education became uh, a very challenging thing for Rohingya to be able to access uh, throughout the 80s, 90s um, and in, 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 in the modern era. Access to modern healthcare facilities. I mean, Myanmar is, is not known for having great healthcare facilities at the best of times. Uh, the Rohingya had virtually no access to modern healthcare facilities. Again, very shocking insights on the genocide that is encompassing the lives of the Rohingya people within Myanmar. And Dr. Lee spoke of the lack of healthcare facilities, the, the lack of access to education, a, essentially a ostracization of that community into Rakhine State. They, I mean, they can't even leave that state if they would like uh, because of these draconian citizenship laws that have been implemented. What I also found very fascinating, Khaled, was that this change that he spoke of happened uh, happened obviously incrementally, but it happened purely because a military dictator, Buddhist military dictator, came into power and thought Myanmar can only be a Myanmar for Buddhist people. 
and anyone else with any other religion is a foreign illegal immigrant. So coming on to our next question, this big conundrum of Aung San Suu Kyi. Aung San Suu Kyi, someone who's educated in the West, Oxford University, politics, philosophy and economics degree, same as David Cameron, Ed Miliband, got the Nobel Peace Prize in the 1990s. Yet someone who could not prevent these violations from occurring. My question to Dr. Lee was, why that was the case? Well, she supports democracy, but she doesn't support what we would regard as Western democracy. She supports a majoritarian democracy. Right. So uh, d- democracy where, the, where there's a vote and the majority will be in government and the minorities can fit into what the majority wants to have happen. She would, I would characterise Aung San Suu Kyi as um, a Buddhist nationalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe maybe her, her public statements have not been as forthright as some of the more extreme Buddhist nationalists within Myanmar. But her views, it would appear, and certainly her actions when it comes to ethnic minorities and particularly when it comes to the Rohingya, would be virtually indistinguishable from that of the Myanmar military. So she appears. So there's a case at the International Court of Justice. Um, th- th- there's allegations that Myanmar has not lived up to, I mean, rightly, allegations that Myanmar has not lived up to its responsibilities as a signatory to the Genocide Convention. And Aung San Suu Kyi took it upon herself to go to the International Court of Justice and defend Myanmar. Uh, and defend the actions uh, in 2017 where the Rohingya were genocidally deported from the country. Now, part of part of Myanmar, I mean, the heavy part, the key part of Myanmar's defence is that they say, well, there may have been war crimes and there may have been crimes against humanity, but there is no intent to commit genocide. Therefore, you can't accuse us of genocide. Right. I mean, that's a pretty weak argument if you're, you're 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 dealing with mass atrocities of the scale that we saw against the Rohingya in 2017, um, scorched earth uh, tactics hundreds of Rohingya villages laid to waste uh, 900,000 people fleeing across an international frontier. Uh, it, would, it would not be wise, in my view, if you, didn't, if you didn't support those policies of the military, it would not be wise to defend them in an international courtroom. But Aung San Suu Kyi did. And I think that we've made a... I think internationally, we misjudged her views mm-hmm. on how the country should, should be. I mean, she's someone who's a... She's a committed. Um, she's a committed Buddhist nationalist. She's a committed nationalist. Um, I think she sees the country in the same way as her father, um, the independence hero Aung San, the independence hero of the country, as a primarily as a Buddhist country, where the Bamar ethnicity, which is is the majority ethnicity, they make up about seventy percent of the country, um, are the are the dominant group and are the hegemonic group culturally and in terms of business and in terms of running the government. Right. And I think that we didn't know and we didn't look too deeply because when she talked about democracy, we, we, we immediately thought, well, she, she means the same as what we mean. Absolutely, yeah. She no, means no, consolidated democracy where there's a role for minorities and there's a role for an, an, an official opposition and there's a role for, for religious diversity and there's a role for ethnic diversity. And I don't necessarily think that her views on that are the same as, as how we would see a Western view. No, that makes um, sense. She stood by in 2017. So when, when the military were um, rampaging through Rohingya communities, she could have called for, for restraint. 
I mean, she had no constitutional control over the military. They're, they are literally a law unto themselves. They, there's no civilian oversight. But she has strong. She has. She's a. She's a beloved figure in the country. Um, had she called for restraint, I think we would have seen restraint on the part of the military because they would have been embarrassed into it. What mm -hmm. she did instead was she defended um, their actions and, in fact, told international observers who were saying what was going on with genocide. She described it as a, a, an iceberg, a huge iceberg of misinformation. Wow, is what is what she said internationally in a in a very high profile speech. So again, a very fascinating insight into the um, political landscape of Myanmar and the idea that democracy there, I guess, means something very different to democracy here in the UK and the complicit behaviour of Aung San Suu Kyi in all of this. Coming towards the end of this interview with Dr. Roland Lee, I then asked a question around the day-to-day -day experience of the Rohingya. The Rohingya, of course, now there's a very large contingent of refugees in Bangladesh. My question to him was, what are the conditions like? He's obviously going to be embarking on a research study next year around the lived experiences of the Rohingya. It's pretty grim. Conditions are, conditions are genuinely bleak. Um, international donors, so um, the, the international communities would describe it. So the UK, the EU, the US, India, China, any, anyone who's in Japan um, have cut the donations that they're providing to the refugee response. So the World Food Programme has cut the refugee ration. So they're now living, uh, they're now living refugees in those camps are now living on eight US dollars per month. Per Shocking. They're not allowed to work. So, so there are rules. So Bangladesh is mindful that it doesn't want to create a draw for, for, for more refugees, although I don't, I don't think that allowing them to work would, would do that. I mean, they're fleeing genocide. They're not looking for economic opportunities. Um, but they're not allowed to work. They're not allowed to open businesses. So they're not allowed to open sort of a small bakery or a shop or anything like that in the camps. So life is pretty bleak. Access to education is incredibly limited. There are, they're not allowed to teach the Bangladesh curriculum. They must teach the Myanmar curriculum. And there are, there are challenges finding people who can teach that and, and getting approvals to, to do that. Healthcare access, of course, it's a refugee camp where you have one million people unable to build permanent structures. So they can't use bricks. So they've been there since 2017 and they're living in housing made out of bamboo and tarpaulin. But it's not safe for them to return home to Myanmar. The solution here for the Rohingya is to make their community in Myanmar safe for them to live in. Hmm. I mean, that takes regime change within Myanmar. It takes getting the military out of power in Myanmar. And, and it takes working with whatever replaces the Myanmar military to make sure that, that it's not a government that has the same view as the government of Aung San Suu Kyi. Yeah. Because life for the Rohingya would, would, would be pretty bleak within Myanmar were that to be to be the case. No, absolutely. Uh, that said, though, there are there are Rohingya that you will you will see. You can find them on on, on on social media who are who are fighting this, resisting this situation, very bleak situation, through creative means. They're writing poetry. Um, they're taking photos of camp life to share with with the world. Um, they're they're they're, they're um, completing artworks. Um, th this this is not just a community of victims. Yeah. They've been victimized. But these are people just like us who, who, who want a, a good future for their children and for themselves. They want to have the life opportunities that we take for granted, and, and we, we should we should let them do we should let them have that. And ending ending step on a positive. One, 
Uh, well, gonna, step one should yeah. be, I, I think, step one should be making sure that, that the, the humanitarian call is fully funded and that their rations are returned to livable levels. Again, very interesting and, and very saddening to see the, the impact of where we've ended up in terms of the refugee camps that exist, the fact that you have a million people unable to build permanent structures. I can't use bricks. I mean, that that, that is... Yeah, heartbreaking sort 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 of insight, and it's it's difficult for us to see where the, the next stages are, are are going to be for mm. the Rohingya people, and and you know what the solutions or the resolutions are to what is the genocide that is being committed against them, and and I think we then wanted to understand from Dr. Lee's position what the humanitarian call must be. Yes. And as is the case for the show ongoing, we always want to understand what the humanitarian cause must be to, to end this genocide. Yes, absolutely, Khaled. And to summarise for the purpose of time, Dr. Ronan Lee essentially is saying that the solution to the issue is that the Rohingya can return home back to Myanmar and live in a free democratic Myanmar where freedom of religion and belief is respected and where people of different faiths can live together. And this isn't a foreign concept, if we really think about it. Before the military takeover in the 1960s, Myanmar was such a country in which religious freedom was respected. So going back to those ideals is essentially what Dr. Only sees as the solution, but a long, long way indeed ahead. And to summarise, Khalid, that the core of the issue and this conflict, this persecution stems purely from a religious difference. Rohingya Muslims are Muslim. You have a Buddhist military dictatorship. The dictatorship doesn't see Muslims as part of the national fabric of Myanmar, and hence they are ostracised, alienated and persecuted to the extent that we see genocide as well in that persecution. What I found fascinating at the end of that interview was ending on a positive. There are very young activists out there who are being very creative in showcasing the plight of the, of the Rohingya, but also individuals who've gone through these camps and have made a better life for themselves as yep. well. So it's very inspiring to see despite all these, these challenges. And before we conclude today's episode, in an address by His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he states that during the time of the Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and his four rightly guided caliphs, the rights of non-Muslims were never usurped, and nor were they pressured into accepting Islam, nor abandoning their traditions and beliefs. Poignant words from His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, on highlighting the fact that Islam's principles of freedom of religion and belief are a universal principle, irrespective of whether one is a Buddhist, a Jew, a Christian, a Hindu. This brings us to the end of this show. Please join us next time where we'll discuss the issue of Amadi Muslim persecution. I'd like to thank my panellists, uh, Dr. Ronan Lee, who we interviewed earlier this week, and my co-host Khalid Hayat for joining me um, on this episode. I'd like to mention that the views and opinions mentioned by the panellists are their views only and do not necessarily represent the views and outlook of the Voice of Islam radio. For feedback and for more information or to listen to this episode again, please log on to www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Until next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.